these guys are playing. You just have to kind of sit back and enjoy it. So Michigan baseball winning three out of four uh, from Michigan State as they started the second half of uh, the Big Ten Conference season in 2006. They are still tied in first place with the Northwestern Wildcats with 12 conference games remaining. Michigan will need to pick up at least one more game on Northwestern uh, to control their own fate and win the Big Ten for the first time since 1997. But that will wrap things up from here in the basement of the Student Activities Building. Hope you've enjoyed the show. Uh, that'll do it here at WCBN. So for Ted Pickus, I'm Steve Schuster saying good night and go blue. You are listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. The sports department would like to thank you for your continued support of the University of Michigan Student Radio. Moss knocks over Tambellini, winds up and he scores! Jeff Tambellini lets the laser go from the near side circle, and the Wolverines take a 1 0 lead off the rocket, off the stick of Jeff Tambellini. Bing Crosby, wrap your troubles and dreams, take four. Castles may tumble, that's made after all. Life's really funny that way. Sang the wrong melody, we'll play it back. See what it sounds like, hey, hey. They cut out eight bars, the dirty bastard. And I didn't know which eight bars he was going to cut. Why don't somebody tell me these things around here? Holy Christ, I'm going off my nuts. Uh, the last bastion of freeform, WCBN FM and Abba. Sounds like a bunch of left-wing hippies to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez, that mic is on. The mic's on. Oh, my God. Turn off the microphone. Uh, the mic is on. Welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. And I'm Jim Dwyer, returning after... Some weeks. Yeah, I figured you'd be back next week, but you're down here today. Great. Yeah, the final exam today, so the semester is through. Yeah, it's always a good feeling. It's sort of like the uh, boulder in the myth of Sisyphus sometimes (laughs) during the finals week. You're pushing it up the hill, and it comes right back down at you. Well, uh, I think it's unfortunate, by the way, that today they decided to have all these immigration marches on this particular date. Not that uh, they shouldn't have these marches, but of course it uh, takes the uh, focus off the third anniversary of Mission Accomplished. Indeed. Haven't heard any discussion of that at all in the mainstream media. So Bush is delighted that it's happening. Uh, He, of course, uh, was able to score cheap political points on Friday regarding this silly controversy about the translated version of the Star-Spangled Banner. And in honor of that, where he claimed uh, he wants to see all immigrants learn English, I am reminded of the one of the funniest paragraphs in political history by H.L. Mencken, because I wish the president would learn English. Indeed. <laughs> this is from H.L. Mencken's uh, 
absolutely hilarious essay dated March 7th of 1921 entitled Gamalese, which of course is a spoof of uh, the president at the time, Warren G. Harding. And of course there are some Somewhat uh, similar comparisons, uh, I think, regarding the Harding administration and the Bush administration in the area of... Scandal and incompetence? Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Uh, we're now starting to see some people actually claiming that Bush may go down in history as the worst president in American history. So, naturally, uh, Mencken, who, of course, was a master linguist among his other many talents, and by the way, I think that his uh, writing in the 1920s is when he was at the apex of his career. I don't think he ever quite understood the uh, problems of the Great Depression um, at all. Um, and maybe that will lead us into a brief discussion of John Kenneth Galbraith later. But anyway, uh, this uh, paragraph is just too funny not to read in honor of George Bush's command of English. And, of course, he, uh, Mencken is referring to Harding here. He says, but when it comes to the style of a great man's discourse... I can speak with a great deal less prejudices and maybe with somewhat more competence, for I have earned most of my livelihood for 20 years past by translating the bad English of a multitude of authors into measurably better English. Thus qualified professionally, I rise to pay my small, my small tribute to Dr. Harding, setting aside a college professor or two, and half a dozen dipsomaniacal, maniacal uh, newspaper reporters, he takes first place in my Valhalla of literati. That is to say, he writes the worst English I have ever encountered. It reminds me of a string of wet sponges. It reminds me of tattered washing on the line. It reminds me of stale bean soup, of college yells, of dogs barking idiotically through endless nights. It's so bad that a sort of grandeur creeps into it. It drags itself out of the dark abyss, abysm, and I was, a right, I was about to write abscess, of pish, and it crawls insanely of the topmost pinnacle of posh. It is rumble and bumble. It is flap and doodle. It is balder and dash. And I think that sums up Mr. Bush's command of the English language quite well. Well, a couple of weeks ago, and you may have spoken about this, uh, having been in my Monday class, not uh, able to hear the program every week, um, when new cries came forward from uh, retired generals to have Rumsfeld step down, uh, Bush asserted that, that, was, that he was the decider yeah. and that uh, he would make that decision, that he had made that decision, and Rumsfeld would stay on because he's doing a great job, but uh, the decider was a new title, and it sounded to me like a name of uh, some new reggae uh, personality. <laughs> the Decider? But uh, my big excitement for today is that, um, golly, today's Loyalty Day. Okay. And um, last week, uh, Bush called on it. You probably listed it last May. This is from an item in uh, Ann Arbor's uh, Sunday paper. Uh, reprinted by uh, from the Newhouse News Service, Drew Sefton's article, Pledging Their Allegiance. You probably missed it last May when President Bush called on you, well, specifically the people of the United States, to observe Loyalty Day by reaffirming allegiance to the nation and flying the flag. Yes, I'd never heard of this before, but May 1st is officially, uh, apparently, 
Loyalty Day. This goes back to uh, July 18, 1958, when this was approved by then-President Eisenhower over uh, the veterans of foreign wars who found May Day parades offensive Mm -hmm. and un-American. Which, of course, is what today is, May Day. Indeed, and you know, even before uh, communism uh, as a concept, May Day was always a historical uh, celebration day for the emergence of springtime and the celebration of fertility and and whatnot. You know, pagan holidays predating even Christian Europe. Uh, so there's always been human uh, fun and activity on May Day. Hey, the weather's good. Spring is here. It's exciting. Um, but to uh, Loyalty Day, uh, you know, I was joking around about this at home, and, and Mars said, well, how very Soviet of uh, the president to declare, uh, to wish us all a happy Loyalty Day. So I'm not sure what uh, you did for Loyalty Day, but uh, I didn't say the pledge. Well, I... It's a piece of fabric which represents things. Yeah, I haven't been near a flag yet today. Um I'm sure that I'll uh, sing the Star-Spangled Banner tonight in Spanish uh, <laughs> during the Red Wings game. Oh, wait, maybe maybe it'll be French. Right. That would be a real insult. <laughs> Mon Dieu! <laughs> yeah, so. well, it's interesting how uh, today has been, I guess, appropriated by a variety of groups for all sorts of protest weekend. I, there, there were protests about the fur... The uh, situation in uh, the Sudan regarding Darfur, mm-hmm. and uh, there was a big rally in the mall. And, uh, well, I guess in honor of May Day, I guess the, we'll give our uh, kudos to the uh, president of Bolivia today, uh, Evo Gonzalez, uh, decided to nationalize uh, Bolivia's natural gas. And he is apparently uh, working in uh, conjunction with. Um, Hugo Chavez of uh, Venezuela and uh, Castro of Cuba uh, to basically assume control of the resources of that country. And uh, this is a very interesting development uh, regarding both uh, Latin American politics moving leftward as well as the anti-American element involved in this. Uh, Bolivia, I believe, actually is the second largest exporter of natural gas globally, and the United States relies on Bolivia for uh, liquefied natural gas uh, as part of our energy mix. And it's interesting, a couple, uh, just last week, you know, gas prices have Mm -hmm. been in the news all week. And the president declared, oh, I'm going to investigate why prices have gone up. And I thought, dude... (laughs) Why don't you look at your foreign policy over the last three years? You've uh, invaded Iraq. You've attempted to overthrow the government of Venezuela and Hugo Chavez, hence uh, partially explaining his more radical uh, policies uh, since then. Uh, He's Mm -hmm. been basically aligning himself with the more radical elements of OPEC. And as he pointed out, uh, don't complain to me about the price of oil, when the price of Remy Martin a barrel is something like $144,000. Perhaps that's a drink that he enjoys uh, with his cigars late at night uh, after uh, Miss Jeff with the First Lady. Who knows? But uh, uh, it's an interesting development, and it just shows how incompetent the American media are in analyzing why gas prices have actually gone up uh, these several years. Of course, Iraq's oil production is down substantially since the invasion of uh, Iraq by uh, 
our commandante, uh, Mr. Bush. So uh, if he wants to look or conduct an investigation into why oil prices have gone up uh, globally, and of course, <clears throat> certainly the laws of supply and demand are part of this, um, Mr. Bush ought to look at his foreign policy, but I doubt he will. Yeah, I mean, that's just empty rhetoric, have an investigation. There's been constant requests for Cheney to surrender certain papers so that there can be investigations, and, well, that's not yet transpired, so, no. There will be no investigation. Not too surprising. And why would there? And uh, just uh, real quickly, I noticed that John Kenneth Galbraith passed uh, this past weekend at the amazing age of 97, and he's one of those guys that had a kind of a big influence on my life when I was in high school. I read a lot of his uh, his books on economics. It certainly had an influence on my uh, way of thinking. And, of course, Galbraith was a definite uh, New Deal-style economist. Uh, he believed in government intervention. And his uh, his books about economics, I think, are well worth reading for all American citizens because they're written in readable English rather than, uh, shall we say, the dismal science. A, it can be a daunting topic with uh, abstract uh, concepts and terminology. But he's particularly good, I think, at, at uh, exploring the relation. You know, his he sort of came into prominence as a critic of capitalism in one of his uh, great books, The Great Crash of 29, The Affluent Society, and The New Industrial State. And uh, in 1952, I don't think I've ever actually read these two books, but I've read those other three, and they're outstanding. He compiled uh, the American capitalism, the concept of countervailing power, and a theory of price control. He worked uh, in the uh, price control administration during World War II, in which, uh, as he put it so eloquently, people were allowed to lower prices but not raise them. Um, and this was part of the rationing involved in American society during World War II. Uh, and, and, and it has been pointed out as one of the whole problems with Bush's war in Iraq. Uh, there's no call for sacrifice whatsoever. He later, of course, was an advisor to both Kennedy, Johnson, and Bill Clinton. So he de definitely came uh, on the Democratic uh, side of the persuasion. And it was just interesting to hear... Um, some of the media spin regarding his death, saying that his ideas had fallen out of disfavor uh, and that they were no longer relevant um, due to the oh the conservative wave that's uh, undertaken global uh, the global economy in uh, recent decades. But I say that the jury is out on the success of globalization because certainly there are winners and losers. And American society is certainly experiencing those problems. Uh, this, of course, is part of the the criticism that I think is valid in Gen John Kenneth Galbraith's criticism. For uh, John F. Kennedy's era, by the way, he was an ambassador to India. And uh, in relationship to the Kennedy assassination, he has pointed out in his conversations with uh, Kennedy privately. Uh, I believe he actually might have taught Kennedy at Harvard um, as a student, showing how old he is. Um, it's rather incredible that he did live to be 97. But uh, he, he did point out that Kennedy had stated that he planned to get out of Vietnam in the second term. 
These, of course, were private conversations and is part of the historical debate regarding Kennedy's uh, Vietnam policy. But uh, Galbraith uh, said that in his private discussions with Kennedy, that was the plan because he, of course, as ambassador to India, was concerned about American foreign policy in the region uh, back in that day. So it's, uh, well, a a venerable life, and uh, I definitely encourage listeners to check out those books because, as I say, they're very readable um, analysis of uh, some of the flaws of American capitalism in which he describes why the Great Crash occurred. I'm still working my way through Robert Fisk's uh, Great War for Civilization and uh, hope to discuss a few of those chapters uh, in weeks to come. But it's been pretty much schoolwork for me. What else you got? Oh, well, I have the usual. I was going to actually, I, I don't know if you've seen this this famous uh, essay. This certainly... It's getting a lot of uh, talk. I've read some responses to it. Uh, you're referring there, is that the... Yeah, the London, London Review of Books, Books article. Uh, the Israel Lobby by John Mearsheimer and uh, Stephen Walt. Uh, in fact, there's a couple of articles, one article by Norman Finkelstein on today's uh, Counterpunch uh, website about the Israeli lobby and its influence. A uh, lot of questions. Of course, it's it's no secret, and uh, although you'd think it is, uh, given the the mainstream media's treatment of it and the success that uh, defenders of uh, Israel have had in uh, tarring and feathering uh, critics of Israel and the APAC lobby as anti-Semites. It's uh, something not a lot of people are willing to do, openly criticize uh, this lobby or uh, that country's uh, policy vis-a-vis Palestinians. Um, but there's a lot of good reasons to look closely at this, the way this lobby works. Well, it's interesting. I'll give you an example of one of the areas. Um, the anti-Semitism charge, I think, is baloney. And in fact, these intellectuals predict uh, that this allegation will be made. By the way, this is, we're talking here about John Mearsheimer and Stephen Walt. Uh, the latter is part of the Kennedy School of uh, Government. And John Mearsheimer is a... Uh, Ironically, he's actually a former Marine who teaches at the University of Chicago. And the Nation magazine, by the way, has had a number of articles about this. The most recent edition has a long article about this specifically. But an example of why he gets into trouble um, from the the criticism are these sorts of um, paragraphs. But, I mean, these things are just factual statements they write israel's backers also portray it as a country that has sought peace at every turn and shown great restraint even when provoked the arabs by contrast are said to have acted with great wickedness yet on this ground israel's record is not distinguishable from that of its opponents ben gurion acknowledged that the early zionists were far from benevolent towards palestinian arabs who resisted their encroachments which is hardly surprising given that the Zionists were trying to create their own state on Arab land. In the same way, the creation of Israel, the 1947-48, involved acts of ethnic cleansing, including executions, massacres, and rapes by Jews, and Israel's subsequent conduct has often been brutal, belying any claim to moral superiority. 
Between 1949 and 56, for example, Israeli security forces killed between 2,700 and 5,000 Arab infiltrators, the overwhelming majority of them unarmed. The IDF murdered hundreds of Egyptian prisoners of war in both 1956 and 1967. While those wars, while in 67 it expelled between 100,000 and 260,000 Palestinians from the newly conquered West Bank and drove 80,000 Syrians from the Golan Heights. During the first intifada, the IDF distributed truncheons to its troops and encouraged them to break the bones of Palestinians. The Swedish branch branch of Save the Children estimated that between uh, 23,000 to 29,000 children required medical treatment for their beatings from injuries in the first two years of the Intifada. Nearly a third of them were 10 or under. The response to the second Intifada has been even more violent, leading Haaretz to declare that the IDF is turning into a killing machine whose efficiency is awe-inspiring yet shocking. The IDF fired one million bullets in the first days of the uprising. Since then, for every Israeli lost, Israel has killed 3.4 Palestinians. The majority have been innocent bystanders. The ratio of Palestinians to Israeli children killed is even higher, 5 to 7 to 1. And it is also worth bearing in mind that the Zionists relied on terrorist bombs to drive the British from Palestine at the Yitzhak Shamir, once a terrorist and later a prime minister, declared that, quote, neither Jewish ethics or Jewish tradition can disqualify terrorism as a means of combat. This sort of strong language um, and presentation, and I have no objections to any of their historical analysis there, I think it's uh, factually correct, is simply ignored in the sort of the... uh, hyperbole that the critics of these two intellectuals have been engaged in where they just accuse them of anti-Semitism. They don't actually address many of the substantive articles that they make. There have been broad uh, complaints that they don't properly analyze American foreign policy in the region, and I think that there's an element of truth to that. Certainly the APAC lobby does not control all of American foreign policy in the region. But uh, our foreign policy in the region has been biased, to say the least, and it has led to a, not a crumbling, but a sort of slow dripping decline in the American economy. Let's remember that the uh, 1973 Yom Kippur War resulted in the oil embargo that uh, Saudi Arabia slapped on America shortly thereafter. There were five months of incredible... um, gas lines and huge price increases in gas back in and and there was actually energy rationing and in fact they canceled um standard time that year as i recall when yeah. nixon was president and of course the impact of these um rising prices back in the 70s led to a steady decline of the american auto industry um and that's something here in michigan that uh, has had an incredible impact on our country Uh, and particularly our state. Uh, This is why General Motors and Ford, and now Chrysler, which is, of course, owned by (laughs) Mercedes-Benz, have uh, declined in uh, economic power. Uh, When I was a kid, they always said one out of eight jobs in America were related to the automobile. Well, that's no longer the case, and perhaps it's good that uh, uh, several million American manufacturing jobs have (laughs) disappeared as a result of our foreign policy in the Middle East. 
but it's the sort of airing of the issues that uh, it, th- this is the policy debate that needs to be had in America. And the United States has uh, looked askance and asunder and done very little about the problems of uh, the Likud party. And here I'm, I'm making the distinction between Israel and Likud. I think it's the Likud policies of the past uh, 26, 27 years since Begin took power that have been the disaster for America in the uh, so-called Palestinian-Israeli conflict because the United States has silently watched Israel build settlements in the West Bank, and this is now a intractable problem with no easy solutions. It's great that, that Israel... Uh, requested $2 billion from America to withdraw 8,000 settlers from Gaza. But uh, the question is, now what will happen with the West Bank? Who knows? Well, and problems uh, around the corner, too, because of the Bush administration's uh, insistence on refusing to recognize the Hamas victory in elections there, uh, and the money's drying up, and things are getting quite quite bleak and interestingly by the way iran has stepped in the vacuum they're the ones that are going to now supply this money that the americans and europeans have cut off so any opportunity we had to influence which you know was there um is now dissipating so it's enhanced iran yet again and this is just yet one more example of the united states's policy in the region that continues to strengthen the hand of iran uh, it's it's remarkable stuff, and yet the Bush administration will continue this saber-rattling about Iran's uh, nuclear program, including the incredibly inaccurate n- concept that we can somehow deny them knowledge. Now, the knowledge of building an atomic weapons is, is available in physics books here in America. It, it's not a question of the knowledge. The knowledge is there. It's a question of obtaining the uranium and uh, successfully enriching it. Um, so, once again, the president uh, needs a lesson in science. Uh, yeah, who knows where it'll where it'll uh, turn next? But you could hardly have set out intentionally to have uh, presented Iran with more opportunities to uh, strengthen its hand uh, than what the Bush administration has apparently done through uh, sheer incompetence and disregard. Um, Of course, now there's a suggestion by Senator Joe Biden that we should go ahead and split Iraq into three parts and kind of, you know, treat it as a loose federation, um, maintaining its uh, integral whole. It was interesting and humorous to hear Donald Rumsfeld a couple weeks ago assert that Iran is a sovereign nation, um, which is strange because most sovereign nations uh, control their own courts and, and streets and and run themselves, and of course that's not the case in Iraq. Um, well, in fact, it was once an empire. Indeed. <laughs> so it's just... It's been around uh, for thousands of years. Right. Disaster after debacle after a travesty. And by the way, on the, on the Biden uh, proposal, uh, that is actually in today's New York Times... It's co-written with Leslie Gelb, and he actually articulated this concept several uh, years ago that he thought that the actual solution of the to Iraq was to partition it and create three separate nations. Uh, the Bush administration has rejected this idea out of hand, by the way. Um, but just to uh, 
sort of summarize what they are arguing here. Uh, they write, it's the idea, as in Bosnia, is to maintain a unified or, a, excuse me, a united Iraq by decentralizing it, giving each ethno-religious group, Kurd, Sunni Arab, and Shiite Arab, room to run its own affairs while leaving the central government in charge of common interests. Basically, what they're suggesting is a sort of a confederation and the oil revenue would be split. Uh, their theory here is that this would give the Sunni Arabs a incentive to uh, lay down their arms and join uh, this sort of an arrangement. They write, it's increasingly clear that President Bush does not have a strategy for victory in Iraq. Rather, he hopes to prevent defeat and pass the problem along to his successor. Um, I th so I think that their analysis overall is correct. Whether that is the proper solution, who knows? And of course, it's theoretically illegal under uh, the rules of war <laughs> to partition a country right. thusly. Um, but at the rules? same time... <laughs> rules? I mean, the there may, doesn't need It to may have rules. the practical solution. The problem, of course, is I'm sure that the Turks uh, would not be delighted with this uh, proposal, and there have been increasing uh, Kurdish um, attacks in Turkey uh, by Turks. Kurdish Turks. Kurdistan, by the way, is this loose area that encompasses parts of Iran, Syria, Iraq, and Turkey. And there have also been reports that the American government may, in fact, be arming Iranian Kurds uh, in that region of, the, uh, of Iran to foment uh, disorder, dissent, and uh, untidiness, to quote Donald Rumsfeld, in the region. <clears throat> On that note, I would uh, encourage listeners uh, interested in this to check out an article by John Stanton um, on uh, Counterpunch's website dated April 24th entitled Domino Theory Revisited, Strike Iran, Watch Pakistan, and Turkey Fall. Uh, Pakistan itself uh, has several you know, out-of-control elements to it here. There is a separatist movement within Pakistan, which happens to be in a resource-rich uh, area called Balakistan. This doesn't get much uh, attention. Um, and, of course, uh, the Kurds, uh, if Iraq is split along these lines, and I agree with uh, the description in the article there by Leslie Gelb that uh, Bush's policy in Iraq essentially seems like a Vietnam policy. Um, no real plan for victory, just hope against defeat and pass it off to somebody else. Um, but uh, the, the Kurds are sitting on some of the richest uh, resource uh, areas uh, of Iraq. The uh, Sunnis, of course, are not. That's the problem with yeah. partitioning, yeah. And, uh, well, the other problem, of course, is that the Shia portion of Iraq, I mean, the entire state of Iraq, the borders were drawn up by the British uh, back in the day anyway, so there never really was uh, an Iraq until Britain redrew the lines. British Foreign Office has done so many brilliant line oh. drawing throughout America, uh, the world history. Yeah, you look at any major uh, hotspot in the world and there's British fingerprints all delicately around it. Um, so what would happen to the Shia parts of uh, Iraq? Well, again, here we see the hand of Iran strengthened. Queen Victoria's crumpet crumbs. <laughs> what? What news from Lord Kitchener? <laughs> oh, it's not good. 
Yeah, Not well, so good at all. Who knows what will happen? I, obviously, this partition idea is is a a proposal, um, but Bush at Al have dismissed it. Well, it may hand. end up becoming something of a practical reality, yeah. whether or not it has you know pressure from outside forces to see it through. Um, there's increasing signs of, of ongoing sectarian strife. Um, April happens to have been the worst month for U.S. troops in quite some